Section 13 of The Desirable Alien at Home in Germany by Violet Hunt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 12 Lions and Lace Curtains. There was an old municipal featured gentleman in the train going to Hildesheim, and I asked him if he could tell us of a good hotel there. For once, Joseph Leopold and I were not en pays de connaissance. We had got a fit of visiting places strange to us both. He thought and thought. Finally, he warmed to the subject and recommended the E-Hof. It was late. I was tired. Joseph Leopold had a potential wrangle about the luggage in prospect, so I went out alone and took rooms. Across the dreary, modern-looking station enclosure, I saw hospitable lights quivering, and by night I could not tell that there were horrible lace curtains to the coffee-room window, stained yellow, like the coffee-coloured laces worn years ago by the aesthetes. These curtains were looped into bands of old gold, dating back to the same artistic period and yellow lace curtains now and henceforth spell for me the abomination of desolation in the way of hotels, and if ever I see this insignia of horror I give the place of entertainment that is foolish enough to advertise it a very wide berth. I have come to know since that E-Hofs all over Germany flaunt it. E-Hofs seem to be the generic name for hotels of this stamp, that old gentleman in the train going to Hildesheim must have been animated by some strong esprit de corps. Perhaps he was the chairman of the committee of the Gordon Dash, I mean the E Dash Hoffs Limited. I know not, but I have never forgiven him. We dined abominably in a varnished deal matchboard dining room and after dinner all in the dark we walked out and took a tram away from the station neighbourhood right into the heart of hildesheim the tram passed through a long lighted street set with shops on either side handsome shops with large inviting faces that flashed invitation to us across the dark they illuminated and at last in a ghostly ill-lighted platz we dismounted and there we were in the Middle Ages. Towering cathedral spires seemed to loom over us, painted eaves and cornices to tickle our ears as we wandered along entranced from ghostly plaats to ghostly plaats, accompanied by the sound of bells from the many church steeples whose buttresses varied the uneven house line. It seemed as if once past that tram-bestridden and glass-faced main street every house in hildesheim was painted and gargoyled and initialled with its owner's family name and the date of its building far back in the sixteenth century and still in the dark we came to a low shiny oaken doorway humble unobtrusive suggestive of good entertainment of browning for gravies and of glazed hams and the smoke of many flambeaux held under the archway of its entrance the porch of the Wienerhof. 
over the doorway all across the facade interrupted only by the principal windows of the principal rooms the legend of europa and the bull was carved and painted and blazoned peering under the blinds of the speisesaal we could see the officers sitting at their meat the points of their swords clumsily resting on the ground beside their chairs we could see that the room where they were was dimly lighted but enough that there were carved stalls and stags antlers on the walls to be used as prongs to hang the hats and coats on and joseph leopold swore that what these connoisseurs were eating was little crabs stewed in wine he ordered me to go in use my newly acquired german and engage rooms at once for to-morrow i did i entered a hall not very large with an uneven very uneven floor and no gilding an old family-looking butler came forward to meet me and showed me two rooms at six marks each including breakfast breakfast was in the breakfast room downstairs as the wienerhof understands breakfast it was the right kind of breakfast several sorts of rolls good butter and good jams and best of all though not for everyone goose grease to spread on those rolls a great many germans take genzafett for breakfast it is the best thing for your health in the world but as i said before not for everyone then we had mittages and the german midday meal and the important one of the day that is one of the difficulties for aliens when in germany aliens whose habits are corrupted by english and french late dining the only thing to do is to steal a plat or two from the lunch and put it in the dinner or abendessen this rule is useful of course in eating places where there is a set menu and you take it if you dine a la carte and at the wienerhof they preferred you to dine a la carte it is different you get what and as much as you like do english people know what a really good aufschnitt is there is everything in the world in it you do not have to dig for discoveries everything is fairly set out on a large flat dish the trouble is that it takes you quite a long time to overlook it all there are sure to be some slices of ham and some slices of veal i am never surprised if i meet beef or tongue in the middle there is certainly a pièce de résistance cockle shell full of the gem of all herring salat round the rim are slices of all sorts of sausage leberwurst of cheese little heaps of caviar and chopped beetroot gherkins and capers and all this diversion this plethora of interest for one mark fifty i have tasted a maimed aufschnitt a faint reminder of this gorgeous dish at a place in london but how far away it is from the stability the certainty of the german inns catering enough of this i shall be called greedy and i think i am i have taken to german cookery as no alien could ever have hoped to i care nothing for what my grandfather probably called french kickshaws all grandfathers did i detest the eternal omelette of france the eternal pommes frites the same good sauce i don't say it isn't good disposed over everything 
dinner that night though not perhaps a dream was at any rate a charming reality and next morning before we were properly awake a deep bell tolled and we were told by the solemn butler that one of the canons of hildesheim had died and that his funeral sermon was to be preached that day by his fellow canon and confrere in the famous abbey church of hildesheim i knew i was going to be harrowed for church ceremonies always do harrow me and this one would surely be performed with much unction for the canon who lay under the eleven-yard-wide black pall was deeply beloved i dressed myself as soberly as a traveller could compass and joseph leopold and i went in and took our places in the solemn black draped church under the circular candelabra set with jewelled emblems and enamelled discs which bishop hazelow gave to hildesheim in front of the altar stood the quite plain and prehistoric porphyry pillar that people come miles to see it was not always placed inside the church and some say that such a pagan emblem has no business there kneeling black crowds bent all round us and together we all wallowed in woe and wept for an old gentleman whom i had never seen like a thunderstorm with terrible lures and sullen boomies the dies irae resounded through the aisles i can never stand the dies irae i mean without crying and moreover there were impressive circumstances about this funeral this defunct priest was adored by his colleagues a personal friend pronounced the eulogy and broke down midway in sobs and tears so that the rest of his discourse could hardly be heard afterwards we were shown the treasury of hildesheim i grew bewildered with the luxuriance of jewelled croziers and mitres faint with a desire for the flagons and chalices set with gems that winked and coruscated safe from me in their velvet cases alas all that coruscated was not a gem of the purest ray glass had taken the place of the rubies and emeralds which had made the treasury of hildesheim the centre of the desires of greedy contending potentates then we went into the sacristy where treasure of another sort is gathered i am a little jarred by the sight of bones with their ugly suggestive articulated ends swathed in blue velvet and tinsel and of microscopic kreutz articles in pretentious jewelled and velvet cases looking like ravaged birds nests and tiny skulls of martyrs whose size does credit to the heart of the owners rather than to their intellects but after all believers must have something to take hold of and indeed these fibulas of st tierburger these thigh bones of st remigius have seen much service and submitted to much handling every catholic church in germany possesses a due amount of them and at least one chaise studded with holes where the jewels used to be the sight saddens me yet i once trafficked in a relic and sent attested portions away to my catholic friends they were unclassifiable portions of the rotten wood which had formed part of the coffin of st cuthbert of durham sweepings of the floor unconsidered morsels from the point of view of the antiquaries who were collating them 
Still, they seemed very considerable to Father Michael in Paris, to whom I sent a little piece as big as would lie on a sixpence, and which he accepted with the attestation of a canon of Durham for his church. Why not? It had been part of the coffin of an English saint who died and was buried in Lindisfarne in Northumberland in the first century, was carried by devout monks to Durham, where his shrine formed one of the wonders of the British Isles. And many of the queer little oddments enshrined in glass cases in this sacristy at Hildesheim, and others at Limburg and Marburg, are no more important or bulky, and less authentic though they have had gorgeous caskets made for them and have been treasured for centuries. My patient, slightly aloof, humble, yet unconsciously sceptical attitude in the face of such valuable trifles, always annoys Joseph Leopold, and we never make a very long stay in these emporia of holy material. We got outside and walked about in the garden which has grown up in the ruins of the cloisters, and looked at the Holy Rose of Hildesheim, which is one thousand years old, was planted by Charmaine, and still grows and blows. The bush we see is a sucker of the original tree, and it is tended most scrupulously by a service of four gardeners. And in the evening we went to the circus. It was like the country circus one reads of in old English novels with lions and ladies and tigers and tamers. In a platz behind the Wienerhof, an enormous tent had been erected, a tent whose ceiling sagged and drooped and was very ill-lit, thus producing all sorts of beautiful Rembrandt effects. And under this stained grey canopy, like a murky rain-clouded heaven, the lights danced and flickered on the sandy arena, and lovely females ambled round on bare-backed, handsomely caparisoned steeds, and cavaliers in dusky raiment fought for the lady rider of their choice, and finally carried her off, slung across their saddle-bar, while shots were fired and noise enough was made to drag down the weather that lurked in the swelling thunderclouds of the roof. Then the scene changed, and the fire-eater came on and ate fire and hot coals, and tied up a lad in a basket and ran a sword through it in the approved fashion. But the real joy of the evening was the lions. After a long interval, the arena was cleared, and a dozen or so large sections of iron grating, very like our old nursery fender and curved in much the same way, were brought in. These were the component parts of the large circular cage in whose safekeeping the deadly fire were to pursue the revolutions and which was to be conscientiously built up before our very eyes. Slowly, methodically, the work was proceeded with. These tall slats were set up and bolted together one by one, four bolts to each section. And see you don't forget it. The public will not let you off a single bolt. All eyes were fixed on the tremendous safeguard, and the least preteremission of a bolt would have been seized upon and corrected. In what seemed an incredibly long time, each bolt was tapped into its ward by the painstaking official, and the iron enclosure twelve feet high rose complete before us. Then the gates opened, 
and the great grave big-headed lions trooped in lazily to the number of twelve and took up their positions on plaster plinths placed there for them they looked sleepy well fed and hopelessly decadent a lion in a cage has no status it is an anomaly the ages looking down deride and the beasts feel their position these show lions must have lost caste in any feline paradise for a man has known how to make them look ridiculous i hate to see them i do not know why unless it is the enormous head and the encolure of the locks that make its form all out of focus but a lion always reminds me of a musical virtuoso all head and no body then the employer of all this wasted strength the dictator of these masses of useless muscle and taut sinew the tamer appeared he was limp unscrupulous anxious-looking and he continuously lashed the whip that is his safety one knows somehow that every random flip counts that the continuance of that trivial sound in the air is imperative like drum-taps keeping up the martial fervour which makes men die by rote or the music that is the derivative of the tight-rope dancer a nervous dread lest the air should cease to be stirred by that tenuous tang should settle into quiescence and give all the forces of death leave to rush in permeates my whole being while the ceremony goes on i can hardly bear it and the lion-tamer is not so hardened to his dreadful trade but that his eyes fixed on the dangerous couple of brutes or so who were the ringleaders of a possible rebellion are altogether void of fear while his lips pressed tight in the effort of a habitual hold of himself are an incitement to nervous terrors i soon ascertained the identity of the more villainous beasts he had to reckon with i noticed that he was careful of the third lion from where i was sitting and of the next but one to him on these two lions he did not play the worst tricks but he left them alone as much as possible he seemed to have confidence in a rather solid clumsy one and poked him up frequently and even used him for that fearful example of the art of taming that is he put his head in between his open jaws for an appreciable second perhaps that lion's teeth were drawn or filed away i hope so which of us was the more relieved when the show was over and after a gruesome twenty minutes the poor fellow made his bow accepted the plaudits that were the award of his skill and faded away out of the arena he or i i pictured him over his glass at the anchor perhaps saying to himself another day in safety another peril overpassed but i dare say he said nothing of the sort i dare say he went home sober and kissed his children and thought no more about it a small sprightly lady came on next and manoeuvred about with tigers but i felt somehow that her beasts had been drugged out of all natural impulses of violence she was obviously nervous she was excitable flighty she minced and strutted in the jaws of death as if she didn't believe in it at all but she too went bravely through her allotted span of eventful minutes in that glare 
and then out of it to a lover's arms perhaps one invents these stories and now i must take the bitter taste out of my mouth with a pretty story it is connected with that fine character henry the lion it is connected with england too those ill-nurtured plantagenets geoffrey and richard of england distrusted their father's intimacy with his german relative prince henry considering that the latter fomented their own disputes with their parent they resolved to do their best to break the intimacy they chose an occasion when the said gallant prince was on a visit to them in england they carefully spread a report that henry the lion was no prince of the blood but just a needy adventurer to put the matter beyond a doubt their foolish fathers signified his willingness that their guest should be put to a very crucial test one which the princes declared would satisfy them the lion they said is the king of the forest and knows a royal prince by instinct accordingly let one of our royal lions therefore be confronted by this proud saxon and it will then be plainly shown that he has no right to the rank which he has assumed the old henry agreed and directed that one of the most ferocious of the palace minees should be let loose on his guest as he walked unsuspecting in the courtyard after meat henry the lion put to the trial was true to his name he showed no fear but approached the savage beast and called to it in a tone of royal authority as he was used to the surprise and disappointment of the conspirators and possibly the delight of their father the lion crouched back at his feet and allowed the saxon prince to lead it quietly back to its den from that moment naturally all doubts as to his princely descent were stilled and his influence with henry of england was confirmed and later on when his tempestuous virtues had made him an exile from his own patrimony he took asylum in england and the royal palace at winchester was assigned to him his duchess and her children as a residence end of section thirteen